Let's go ahead and get into our teaching for today. I'll try to keep it at just under 30 minutes. So breathe a sigh of relief. Your pot roast is doing fine. All your little delis are waiting for you. Unless you left them out and the cat and dog might be playing with them. But we're going to teach and then we'll dismiss. Head on over to 1 Kings. We're going to see if we can close this out. If it closes fast on you, you can catch up with it later when you have devotional time. But this is where we've been. And so if we do finish chapter 22, that concludes this book and we move into 2 Kings. So a couple of things with regard to how this narration should present itself. And the title may be printed, oh good, it is. The end of the line for a king, deaf, dumb, and blind. And so this is obviously Ahab. And he's just been a bad guy. With all of the time in his tenure, which I believe is at 47 years of a reign, a stout reign, which puts him assuming that he was a young 20-year-old when he began at about 67. It's a life, according to the word, spent in the timing that God has given men, 80th due by strength, summer clocking into 90s. Bert Bacharach is hopefully singing in heaven and writing songs there and not singing in the rain or raindrops keep falling on my head. He clocked into 93, if you're familiar with him. He was a singer-songwriter for a lot of musicians that profited greatly. B.J. Thomas, was that was a song that Burt Bacharach wrote, and B.J. Thomas sung, if you remember that classically. B.J. Thomas definitely is a believer. And if you need to have a side note, his whole career took a tailspin when he stood up on stage and declared Jesus as his Lord. His culture at that time, which would have been the 70s, didn't really want to hear it. And he maintained his walk. He moved through as well times and seasons of carnality, drug abuse, but he came out of it. He passed away, I believe, from cancer fairly quickly. Whether he pairs up with Burt Bacharach in heaven, I don't know. I know BJ's there. And that being said is that this is the time in which a work of grace in Ahab's life had been presented in our last teaching. The teaching was simply in the conclusion that Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. This, of course, is when Elijah would prophesy concerning the doom, and then he would be rerouted to come back and pronounce upon this man, this sinister king, words of grace. It's not going to happen to you, as has been prophesied, but it is an unfolding event that will catch up. One of the things we know about God is that he does not restrict himself from a change in which what is a penalty or a consequence to a man or woman child's life is without the demonstration of grace and mercy. David knew it. There's new mercies for us each and every morning. 
But when we talk about repentance, which is turning from sin or a course in which our trajectory is going to take us away from God, then God, the scriptures show us, does relent, even to think that that was demonstrated with the first family, Adam and Eve, who ultimately had their life, the total script of their life changed because of disobedience to God's word. They had kids, and those kids didn't do too well together. Together, One did very well with God. The other did not do well with God. Abel was the one who pleased the Lord through a sacrifice that he knew in his heart God was worthy of. Cain, not so much, because he thought that on his own, in his own strength, in his own fruits, he could please God. God required an animal sacrifice. Because of the distinct differences between the two, there was an anger that welled up because of jealousy and covetousness in which Cain took it upon himself to take a stone and strike his brother and kill him in the field. God saw it, challenged him in it, and his consequence was to be vanquished. Cain recognized what this meant, and that is that he was a marked man for death, and that anybody that saw him would kill him. And God says, I'm going to distinguish you then. And the mark that I give you will prevent others from taking advantage, justice in their own hands. Your life's going to be forever changed with what you did, but the violence with which you enacted upon your brother, I will not let another man be permitted to do so to you. Grace, we don't understand it, because also the scriptures teach of justice. But when we think of justice, we do need to understand it is a distinct oversight of God of fair and reasonable dealings that may include capital punishment, which is the taking of a life judicially based on witnesses that can say guilty as charged. And so when a culture becomes confused, and last week's teaching would tell us that it's not too difficult for that to happen, because I believe last week's teaching was, as a man goes, so a nation. And it's pretty pertinent with our nation when you see how in 247 years, we have become as corrupt as nations that have lasted thousands of years. How did we catch up? Because we got caught up into men who were not into God, probably will not be caught up with the Lord. And so as a man directed and as a nation follows, so we become. But the point that was made last week is that we follow the Son of Man. And he has established a course in which the personalities that we see in Scripture, which are indeed worthy of being offended by and chagrined, with regard to their behavior as we follow the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, we will be as he is. A part of the church, we will be 
as the one who is positioned over us as the bridegroom or his bride. And so therefore, this opens up, and what we're going to see is that as he's been graciously given an extension, and Elijah delivered that message, he goofs again. Why? Because his heart never could fully embrace what was necessary, which was turning from his sin, turning the nation around, making a punctuating mark that what I've done has been sin to God. We as a nation are sinning. That's my fault. I repent. I call all of you to repent. That's how it, how it should have gone down. In 22 right now, we're introduced to another prophet. He's a wonderful prophet. He's actually a prophet that's been assigned to what we would call the northern kingdom, which is Ahab's in Samaria. This is what he's sent to do. Three years have passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. The going down simply is applying itself to the topography and the spiritual high point of Israel, which is Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat is the king. In essence, these guys are contemporaries. They're not too far from each other with regard to age, but they are totally far from one another with regard to the keeping of the covenant of what God had purposed Israel to do. Jehoshaphat is an extraordinary king. You would think to the degree of how he has walked with the Lord, it would have rubbed off on Ahab, but it tells you something, that in even our empowerment by the Holy Spirit, the gifts and talents that he has distributed to us, people can still find us through an examination worthy of, for instance, Ah, oh, wow, how do you guys do it? My goodness, how wonderful you all appear to be. Boy, if I could just be like you. Well, you can, but it's not on a work that you do in your flesh. It's on a surrender that you do with your spirit, soul, body. It's you giving your life over to the one who's managing our life as it was purposed to be. And so we know that there was a distinction some 35 miles geopolitically, meaning that that is the land that it would take to walk from Jerusalem to get to Samaria, north, towards the Mediterranean, not close to the Mediterranean, but kind of center to where Jerusalem is and the Mediterranean is. And that was Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom was stationed. And Jehoshaphat is going there. Is it a social visit? Was there something scheduled by the schedulers? Is it a treaty? All we know is that from this text of scripture, it was a visitation. And the important things about visitations, which in the same way the Lord uses with us, is that it's a moment in time in which what a person may be going through or decisions that they're possibly going to make can be seasoned reasonably by the invitation of hearing, that's us as ambassadors in our visitations, 
and what we would speak in what the need is or what the decision may be made. So Jehoshaphat goes down there. The journey for 35 miles, you can imagine it. I wouldn't appreciate having to walk that far, but he's there. This is three years, and what's happening right now is Ahab is being teased as he was before. His pride is in the way. He took, as you recall from the previous chapter, an opportunity to steal land from a farmer, a vine dresser, Naboth, and it was handed to him by his sinister wife, Jezebel. He didn't need it. He made an offer seemingly for it that was reasonable, but it wasn't accepted. Maybe by fiat or what we would call executive order or what we also know that works in our country, eminent domain, they would have said, well, tough. This is what we're doing for the sake of the government. We're just taking it. That can be done, and there have been people that have been hurt by it. But in this particular area right now, that was the judgment that God had determined was worthy of his death, that he deciding to take Naboth's land and gloat over it, an act of covetousness as well as murder because two people were employed to lie against Naboth. God was through with this guy. But then he does the, woe is me, humbling himself. Oh, why does he have to do that? We want this guy to be judged. And maybe Elijah would have said, I am so tired of this guy. And I know God's character. I know I'm going to end up turning around. Because I saw him start to turn sheet white when I told him of this penalty. And I saw him to tear his robes. He's going to appeal to God. God's going to make me turn around. We don't hear that, but we do know that he was turned around. Three years have passed. What happens in the time of three years? I'll tell you what happens. People grow cold. I can prove it. Just in the time in which by executive fiat, not legislation, in which COVID was a real dilemma, a pandemic, there were decisions to shutter churches, to shut in people, and essentially destroy the cohesiveness of a society towards one another and businesses. There is plenty of evidence that would suggest we would have gotten through it without the kind of systematic destruction of what was necessary, which was the protection of social, spiritual cloistering. Evidence strongly suggests that we would have gotten through it. But as a result of that, within two years, hearts grew cold. People learned to actually get along without becoming a part of a body work that is so important. We're seeing a buildup again. That's important. But so many disciplines went the wayside. So many people let their guard down. And the consequence has been measured in not how dynamic Christianity is, but how relevant, irrelevant it seems to be. Yeah, we made it fine. We're doing okay. And we don't have to worry about those germs. Well, just so that you're resting assured today, at about 5 o'clock in the morning, I ran an O2 air sanitizer in that room. And then I came out here and ran it in this room. 
and I let the heating system on so it's filtering it. In case you don't know what an O3 is, it's simply a means by which the air is purified by an extra air molecule and it zaps it and kills anything that's in the air. So you'll get to leave here being able to make it through the Super Bowl without a sneeze or sniffle, I think. We do things that we can, but the bottom line is it points to a spiritual necessity. So here's where we're at right now. I'm going to get as far as I can, but the buildup is important. Jehoshaphat, being there is truly as an ambassador. Listening ears, a keen sense of spiritual discernment. One more opportunity to voice something to Ahab, who just does not seem to pull out of his carnality. And so, do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours? He's saying this to his people. Jehoshaphat's going to be an audience to hear this. But we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. Those are the guys that are the occupiers of it. Doesn't mean that it isn't belonging to ultimately Ahab or the northern kingdom. But we must remember that at one time, that was a united kingdom. So why would it be any more Ahab's than it would be Jehoshaphat's? It was a united kingdom. So they're going to have to learn what actually is theirs and what is not theirs. And God was completely willing to let invaders take over land that was no longer being honored by the kings in their protective office. If a king wasn't going to honor God, then God wasn't going to honor the provision of protecting the land. It was, if you would, a sign that says, we better get back to God or we're going to be losing both our nation and the things that have been allotted to our nation. So what do we have going on now? We have seemingly spy balloons floating over America. We hesitate. Well, what's this about? It's the land that we love. It's, it's, it's one nation under God. Where's that coming from? Well, they're not our friends, are they? Are they testing out new cell phone strategies? So what I'm saying is that it's very likely that what we are seeing is in fact an allowance by God in which a political, not ally, but a political adversary is scoping out territory. And we have a means in which territories within our continent have been invaded by what you would call foreign agencies. It actually is, on a military level, something that we should be very much concerned about. Not in these days. That can't happen ever again. That's probably what they said after World War I, pending the time between that and World War II, in which one person, sinister, godless, and with an agenda that would be heinous in the willful destruction of a national group, the Jews, would take power. And he would do so in such a conniving and insidious, and I suppose we would have to say charismatic way, that no one challenged him until it was too late. 
and then too much was at stake. And I, being a part of the younger generation of the men and women that went to war in World War II, you know, my goodness. It is possible that when a nation is allowing itself to be led by a man who has an agenda that is godless, even if they proclaim God, there are consequences to it. Syria was not on God's plate. If it were, we would have been able to hear that. In other words, Ahab, as you've humbled yourself before me, as you've stayed devotional to me, as you've made radical changes in the culture that you corrupted, I want you to have a measure of your prosperity back. I want you to have Syria. I want you to take back what they have occupied and to know that I am with you. Never heard that. And so he said to Jehoshaphat, this is in verse 4, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? This is moving more towards the central area between Jerusalem and Samaria. It would be, if you would, kind of a battlefield zone. But that's where this particular area is. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. It's a political statement. He wasn't totally as he was. But what he's saying is that there's a bloodline that we share and the one God that we should both be honoring. And I'm willing, but note this condition. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. See, as ambassadors, which you and I are, those who have influence because of God in us, we have an opportunity to say, you know, we're more similar historically and spiritually than we are dissimilar. Where you are at culturally, socially, it's different than where I'm at, but I'm here to tell you, if there has to be a change, you come on over to my side. Here's my side. Let's see what God has to think about this. Is God, in this request that you're making of me, in to the decision that I would make for you? And that's where influence is so very important because you're able to bring back a person to what is God's opinion about your endeavor and even if I have a willing heart based on not your character, but because I see something perhaps that is important historically and ultimately transitionally, what is it that you could become if it was that which I helped you out with or for? But I'm not doing this without checking in with God. It was a wise decision that Jehoshaphat was making. And I believe that for him, it would be equivalent to when Jesus would question the motives behind people and what they were doing. That thing that searched the heart. Notice this, though, it moves into the politics. When he says, inquire 
for the word of the Lord today, then the king of Israel gathered, notice, the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And so they said, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Do you remember that Ahab also had prophets in about this same number when he had a time of trying to prove whether or not Baal was a greater God than the Lord God at that time at Mount Carmel? Do you remember that? Well, didn't those guys end up losing their life? And so what we see now is they've been replaced. I suppose you'd call this replacement theology. <laughs> well, what we were doing was wrong. We're just going to now re-implement it again, see if we can do it better. But you can see that it doesn't improve things. It doesn't improve things because the man that could have made those improvements by reassigning a prophetic office in this amount hadn't made changes. They simply learned corruption. Very likely they were the kids of the prophets that had been destroyed in a judgment by God from heaven. And what God did not finish in that judgment you'll remember that Elijah did finish. And so it's very interesting right now that where wisdom is being given, discernment is being exercised, Ahab calls only his guys forward. Notice, though, again, the situation. They cheer him up, and verse 7 says, And Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So what you need to understand is he was very aware that there was a prophet exercising his giftings in that neck of the woods. He was very aware that that prophet was not summoned. He had heard that this prophet was one who spoke truth and adversarially because of truth was rejected by Ahab. We are filled with lies that inundate us from both the media, which at one time seemingly was a trusted institution for civil understanding. How's it going? What's happening? Where's our government? To now those that have become quite if you would corrupt, and that's true, because there have been payoffs and rewards given by those not interested in truth but only power. It's a tricky role. It probably happens on both sides. But in essence, Jehoshaphat is a wise man. He's very aware of those who are serving the Lord, those who have not bowed their knee to Baal. It's very important for you and I to know that in the line or mindset of Jehoshaphat, we can say we know who are those that will speak the word of truth. And when they are absent, then we will not listen to the majority until we know that that one person's voice has been heard to discredit them. It's an interesting time of tension because you go, well, who's discrediting whom? It seems like we've all become really good in the drama game, the political if you would, expediency of persuading somebody against their will or contrary to God. And we're seeing that happen. I know when marijuana became, if you would, the new industry, and it happened during a presidency in which the federal law was not engaging and challenging the states. I know how it happened. 
I know when it happened. I know the consequences of its happening. I'm not going to get into the issue of cannabis being used medicinally or any other thing. I'm just saying that when that law was no longer regarded as worthy of protection and enforcement, you then opened up a door which is leading to the crisis we have at the borders for when one drug loses its power to create euphoria for an individual, they look towards another source to take them to the next level. Fentanyl is that drug. It's inarguable. The body will be tempered and appeased only momentarily before carnality says, I want something better, something more powerful. Get it for me. And that's what the human body will do. It always steps up to the point in which the next step is the demise of an individual. They've gone too far. They've done too much. And they will not be able to control themselves. And I'm very aware of when marijuana came into the school system when I was a young seventh grader, and I saw many of my friends move into that. Many of them are not alive today because of what they could not escape, addiction. Back to this, Jehoshaphat was aware. You make sure that you have an awareness of those who prove themselves as believers, not just good politicians and statements, wise people, industrial, good character. Those are all important. The most important thing is how they stand united with the Lord. And so this person was not present. Jehoshaphat knew it, knew his strength in being able to speak truth to power or truth to lies. And he says, to, uh, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Emiah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. See, Jehoshaphat's offended by the disqualification of Ahab towards this prophet of God because he knows he speaks truth. Now notice what happens if I may just tweak this story a little bit further. Turn to Isaiah 5 and hear what this sounds like. Verse 20. Four minutes to complete 22. No problem. Just hang on and pray me through. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Well, it goes on into woes and other assessments. But it is what you would say classically Ahab's world. 
and the conflict between godly prophets who seem to be only a remnant and are fighting seemingly a battle that they cannot win, seemingly. But the Lord is with them. And Jehoshaphat has wisely exhorted Ahab, in essence, shut your mouth. Don't speak against a man of God like that. Not only how rude is that, how wicked is that, how evil for you to do that. Notice what happens, though. He transitions and says, Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Emiah, quickly. This, in my opinion, would show you a commanding presence with Jehoshaphat. Contemporaries. He's not arguing. He's trying to satisfy one who is now speaking over his contemptuous behavior. The king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the great gate of Samaria. All the prophets prophesied before them. So right now we know that there are 400 absent one. That's why prophecy is a gift, but it's a discerning gift. Its primary resource is in three areas. To exhort, that means to be able to correctively grant an insight to somebody who needs a course correction. Edify, build up somebody who's just been beaten down. You know how to speak the language of God, the promises of God. Comfort, you know how to wipe the tear away. You know how to weep with them. That's really what the Lord says through Paul's writings is the ministry of the prophetic office. It has with it, in this case, foreknowledge. This is what's going to happen. Elijah gave a forecast. This is what's going to happen. But it's also knowledge that is before someone, the means by which you can reason with them. So I do believe that prophecy can be spoken relative to either demise or blessings. That's why people very often will hang on because somebody exercised the prophetic gifting and say, I know what you're going through is hard right now, but the Lord is with you. You must see it through. You must trust in him more. It's not trying to outperform where you're at. You're at a low place. Take your mind, though, and your heart to the high place. Trust the Lord. And so in this exchange right now, the king of Israel called an officer, said, bring Micaiah, the son of Emiah, quickly. And so the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, they're basically right now presenting themselves on each of their thrones at the gate. And in this area, all of a sudden, somebody comes out of nowhere. Here's who he is. Here's what he's going to do. Zedekiah, the son of um, Chenehah, had made horns and iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord with these, You shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. Zedekiah is obviously a guy with big britches and a big voice. He's a prophet. He's even gone into designing something that was to illustrate how much of a victory they would have. Okay, so here's where we're going to close. It's now a conflict of both attitude and presumption. He comes in here. He shows this. The people are going crazy. Yeah, 
We're going to gore him. It's going to be really gory. Zedekiah, this son, makes the horns, presents it. All the prophets prophesied, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. This is mob mentality. It happens. All you have to do is get one person excited that gets another person excited, and everybody's screaming, and they do things then not in the spirit, which these guys never had. They do things in the flesh. We saw cities that were pillaged and looted, plundered and justified by mob mentality that was not of the spirit. It was sociology stuff. It was cultural equity. It doesn't mean that there wasn't wrong done. It means that the writing of that wrong was wrong. You remember a quote that I gave several teachings ago. It's still apropos at this moment. Right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong about it. And so this dramatic play right now goes up. These prophets come in in their mob voice. Then the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord are encouraging the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. What's happening right now? He's being insincere. He's being insincere because nothing that he's ever said to this king has ever been received. So he's basically saying, I'm saying what you want to hear. Do it. You're going to do it anyways. Go ahead. What does that do when somebody's chided by simply an acquiesce to what they needed to hear, which was a no? Puts doubt in their mind. The thing is, is Micaiah's challenging this guy to ask a deeper question. What's God told you to do? In this, we see, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And then he came to the king, and the king said to Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? He answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Where we left off. 16. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Ooh, such drama, Ahab. Why now? It's because his heart is convicted that what he's asking Micaiah to do is contrary to the things of God, to speak only what he wants to hear. It's actually riling him up. And he's saying, okay, I want to hear the truth. Notice. He said, this is a vision that's happening prophetically. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain as the sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. Verse 18, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? This is essentially what's being said in this vision. You're going to go out. These are like sheep. 
they're going to be scattered because you're going to be taken. You're dead men. In essence, the shepherd, which as a king, he would be noted for, even as David had been, would take his sheep out into battle and they would be routed. And he would not come back with them. In the scattering, the shepherd being struck, the sheep would scatter. It was a picture. Jehoshaphat sees that. Excuse me, Ahab sees that. Jehoshaphat certainly is listening to it. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you? That's where we left off. Notice this. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And so one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. And we will close this out in this manner. This is the legacy of a man who will terminate with nothing good to say about him when every opportunity in the pursuit of God for his heart had been given. Why could it have been that for this man such an illustration would have been permitted? It's just what God will do, that there's no man that would be disqualified from the grace of God if their decision is to repent of their ways, their sinful behavior, and come into a relationship that God has offered through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world, the personal sin of every man, woman, and child, inherited both in birth and that ultimately expresses itself in the carnal mindset until the Spirit of God is given dominance by invitation into their heart. It's fascinating how this goes, and we won't be able to finish it right now. And I'm wanting to do that because I want to conclude the service today, not by necessarily keeping you on a cliffhanger. You can read the results. But to be able to say that even in an audience like ours today, we have a mission there are missions that we can go to, and some of us will be going on mission to Israel, satisfying things that have been put on your heart to do in Israel. But as the church right now, we do have a mission to be praying. We have worldwide cataclysms that are evident to us that are so incredibly devastating, which I believe they are right now off the scale just in terms of the earthquake that has transgressed in Turkey, 25, 30,000, something like that. Not even all of them discovered, but I think that is the body count. That's not God, by the way, doing it. That's the land that's groaning and shifting. All creation is making itself on the ready to welcome ultimately the change and ultimately the return of the Lord. The world system right now is in convulsions, and the way that we see it manifests itself in social strata, as well as in spiritual, when we see attacks on the church and the area of morality being no longer that which we presume is to honor God, as opposed to consent to it. Did you know that one of the number one albums, I believe, of the year acknowledged in the 
Hollywood festivity called the Grammys was to a non-binary, transgender, whatever, devil costume wearing person. And his album was called Unholy. And they basically moved through this, got tagged on WorldNet Daily. They moved through a section of song that was completely in what we would say the imagery of satanic worship. And America said, number one. And you just go, you got to be kidding me. Really? Why? And the next guy that took the sweep was a guy named Harry Styles, whose name originally in the band that he was in was a cool name. Should have been taken by a Christian band, One Direction. Because now, in my opinion, he's going no direction. But he doesn't believe that because all of the world truly is bowing down. He's been labeled an extraordinary both actor and musician. The band, who knows what they're doing? Not many of them are doing as well as when they were in One Direction. The question is, is the direction that they are headed now, does it lend itself, does it guarantee that they will be with the Lord in heaven? Are they squandering their life presently? To get simply back to the title, our culture, even our own weaknesses, would permit us to say, deaf, dumb, and blind, I was. Not any longer. But the world that we live in is getting deafer, dumber, and blinder. And I don't know how much blinder you can get. But the Lord's there to remove that deficit in not being able to hear his voice, not being able to see his face, not being able to sense the relief of the burden of sin that clings and weighs down an individual. There's only so long you can plot along and sin before it sticks to you, weighs you down, and takes you down.